everyone. This is Caden, and you are listening to Happy Hour History. I'm here again with Kara. Hi, Kara. Hello. And we're going to be doing uh, the second part of Miriam McCabe's episode today. So if you haven't listened to part one, you probably should, because it's not going to make a lot of sense without it. Uh, but I will be doing a brief summary just to catch everyone back up to speed. Uh, in the meantime, just a couple of reminders. Firstly, uh, this is a comedy history podcast. Uh, the premise involves drinking. So if you have issues with drinking, swearing, general kind of silly humor, uh, this might not be the place for you. This episode, like this topic in general, doesn't really go into like a lot of sexual content. So that shouldn't be an issue. Um, but otherwise, if any of those things are a problem for you, I would suggest clicking out of this show. Um, With that, I'll just say sorry to my mom, and we can begin. guys so just to summarize a bit of what we did last episode so we are talking about miriam makeba she was born uh just outside of johannesburg in south africa she was obviously born to uh two bantu parents her mother was swazi her father was kosa just a reminder again that i am going to be mispronouncing a lot of things this episode because i cannot do the click language which is kosa uh so (laughs) my bad on that Uh, She grew up in a pretty musical family. Her father played the piano, her mother played various kind of indigenous instruments, and her brother was an avid record collector. So she grew up kind of singing with her church choir and with her school. She performed for the royal family on their 1947 visit. Uh, So she was doing quite a lot. Um, Unfortunately, her father passed away when she was very young. Her mother... Uh, in doing the work that she had to do for these white families as like a domestic servant was kind of kept away a lot. So she did grow up mostly with her grandmother. Uh, Once she's old enough, she eventually gets married for the first time. It goes pretty poorly pretty quickly, but she does end up with her daughter, Bongi, uh, from that marriage. She starts performing with a couple of bands, uh, the Manhattan Brothers, most notably, but also the Skylarks, and for a little while, the Cuban Brothers. Uh, She performs several different songs that we talked about last time that we got to listen to a bit, which was exciting. Uh, She also performs a bit in English, which was sort of unusual for the time, and they kind of butchered one of the songs, but, you know, it is what it is. And all of this was happening kind of while the apartheid government was um, essentially making a lot of broad sweeping uh, governmental policies that had a huge impact on the black communities in South Africa. So we talked a little bit about 
uh, Sophia Town and the movement to take all of the black community out of Sophia Town and move them to the Meadowlands and how that inspired a lot of music, including her, so- her song, Sophia Town is Gone, and how she considered that she didn't really sing about politics, but that she was just singing about her life and the truth. And if those things were, you know, if they were interconnected, then what that says about us and and our aversion to listening to people's life stories and how that intersects with politics. Uh, We also talked a bit about her role in the musical King Kong and her uh, performance in the movie Comeback Africa, which is sort of like a weird mix between a documentary and a regular fictional film. And because of that film, we sort of ended with her leaving South Africa to go first to the Venice Film Festival and then on to London and the U.S. She eventually settled in New York. She um, had been working with Harry Belafonte, who was an American singer, and he kind of helped her through this transitional period. Wasn't Belafonte the one that really helped boost her, I guess, View, not views, but she went on a show, I thought, and got a million people. Yeah, she did. So she went on the Steve Allen show 10 days after arriving in America. Wow, fresh off the plane. And got Yeah. And then after that, that was in LA. And then she, from there, basically spent most of her time in New York. And she kind of built up a group of friends, um, like Black artists and people in the music industry as well. So that was really good because it helped her uh, to kind of get connections and also just to have a friend group of people who understood kind of the same things that she was going through. I would be interested to know, I guess, if there were like other folks from South Africa, like if there was a if there was a community of South African exiles, because I would think the government like that would. We are going to talk about that a little Like, I would think the government would just be completely against, not just, like, celebrities, I guess, singing or even remotely singing about their experience. But I guess I never thought of the U.S. in that time as, like, a refuge. Yeah, because it's not a great one. I think of, I guess I think of, like, early 20th century, you know what I mean, for as an exile for folks. But what decade was this in? If you wouldn't mind refreshing me on the. Um, we are like just heading into the 60s. Man. So like, is this pre-Kennedy assassination or after? It is pre. Pre. I believe. Yeah. When was Kennedy assassinated? This is like something that you should know off the top of your head. 11 63 Alright, we good. Yeah. Yeah. So he, this is pre-Kennedy assassination. You've heard it here first. It turns out studying history does not actually just mean memorizing dates. No, but it does give you an idea, though, right? Because I feel like, like... Yeah, like what the system is in America and like where we're at if you are an American and have that sort of frame of reference to work with, which we both are. So, But yeah, no, that's a good point. So that is sort of the summary of her life thus far. And we are going to be getting um, a little bit into, like, I'm going to go off on a slight tangent about something else, and then we'll bring it back. Um, But I did mention at the end of the last episode 
that she would find out that her passport had been um, basically nullified and that she was stateless, essentially. And that is something that we're going to be getting into at the beginning of this episode. So we're going to explain sort of the backstory to all of that. So uh, in South Africa, I think I mentioned a little bit last episode, but going into more depth now, there were laws that were called the pass laws. And they forced people to carry internal passports with all of their identifying information. Uh, They were used to segregate the country by severely limiting the movement of black people who were deemed to be outside of their designated areas. So if people aren't supposed to be living in Johannesburg unless they have like a reason, like if they're living with a black family or if they're living with a white family, excuse me, um, that would be a reason why maybe they would be living there. But otherwise, again, they had tried to remove any black people from actually living in the city. And, it, and the same with Sophia Town, which we talked about last episode. Um, so having these internal passports basically said, I might be here for work reasons or I might be here for, you know, X, Y, Z. But the thing is, is that... Um, any official at any time, if you were stopped and handed over your passport, could basically say, nah. Even if you had a valid reason, they could just be like, nah. And they could just, like, X out your ability to be there. So it was rough. That's shit. That's literally shit. It was a Why? bad time. Um, pass laws date back quite early into South Africa's history. So there had been similar-ish laws prior to all of this. Um, And they're part of the reason why Miriam was born outside of Johannesburg rather than in it. I think we mentioned that last episode. Um, But the the apartheid government had made the system a lot worse and had instituted, like, more restrictions and things that just made it um, jumping through hoops to be where you needed to be, essentially. And it was a jailable offense to be out without a pass And no black person could be in a city for more than 72 hours without permission. So That's really messed up. Yeah. I guess that would be the G-rated way of saying that. (laughs) That's fucked. um, That's, yeah, bingo, exactly. And, you know, I just looked up because I was very curious. And it looks like the pass laws, like, were a thing until 1986. So we're talking about, like, another 20 odd years beyond yeah what frame we're talking about and oh yeah you under oh yeah I mean I, I didn't realize I mean I knew about a, like different thing like things vaguely with apartheid and different things but man the past law let's just put it this way I could see things happening in other places very similar if yeah. they're not already yeah um and, and it's fucked that it would be a racial done on such racial grounds like can you imagine just having a different skin color and someone saying, we don't want you here for more than two days or three days. What? Like then again, even even if you have permission, an official can just be like, yep, permission revoked. Like if you just say the wrong thing to the wrong person. So you could be like wearing a purple shirt, right? And they hate purple. (laughs) And then not today. That's send you on your way packing. And I'm guessing they didn't have any kind of like legal way to challenge that either in that system i would suppose i I wouldn't think so based on who is in power at the time but they wouldn't have a lot of 
recourse. Yeah. yeah. They wouldn't like inbuilt that into their own system because they are bad people. But yeah. No, because that would be admitting it's messed up, right? Like if you put in like a loophole because you know it's bad, then you're admitting it's bad. Yeah. And it's just a fucking cycle. Yeah. So long story, very, very short. This whole system, among many of the other racist policies they had, was absolute garbage. Um, And in the 1960s, or rather in 1960, uh, there was a movement among the Pan-Africanist Congress to help bring down these past laws. So they actually encouraged everyone on March 21st to leave their passes at home. So even if you had a pass, even if you had permission to be wherever you were going to be, you were supposed to leave it at home. And everyone who was involved in this protest was going to go to the Sharpville police station. So this is happening in Sharpville. They were all going to go to the police station together to essentially turn themselves in. We want to be arrested. None of us have our passes. We are here illegally, essentially. Uh, And it would clog the jails, disrupt business, and make a necessary point. So anyone who was meant to be there for business would not be doing the work they were meant to be doing. It would just be generally disruptive and uh, hopefully would bring to people's attention how unfair this whole system was. Of course, you know, white people always hate being moderately inconvenienced, but they never blame the right thing. So, Well, it sounds like what John Lewis would have described as good trouble. You know what I mean? Like bringing it to the attention by causing disruption to unfair and unjust systems. Yeah. And... I mean, I don't understand why being mildly inconvenienced takes precedent in some people's mind over the, like, really fucked up legislation. You know what I mean? Like, human decency. And obviously that has parallel. That's a question (laughs) for the times. That's a question forever. (laughs) Forever. Yeah, Um, exactly. That question (laughs) never seems to be fully answered. But... Ever. Yeah. (laughs) So this was meant to be a nonviolent protest. It was very explicitly stated that we're not going Uh to hurt anyone. Um, There's not going to be like a riot or anything. We're just coming to the jail and saying that all of us together would like to be arrested because we are breaking the law. And they ended up outside of the police station that day for several hours. And it did, I mean, not like a riot or anything, but it did turn into sort of a protest, obviously, The police knew what they were trying to do, and so they weren't going to waste time, like, individually, like, processing every single person who came in. Um, It was treated like you would a a protest where the police kind of stood outside of the station, and they had weapons, but, like, they weren't pointing them at them, but it was just kind of a standoff between the two sides. And they were there for several hours. Eventually, the police claimed, after several hours, that... uh, Many of the officers were hit with stones, leading them to shooting into the crowd. Oh, shit. And as a result of this, 69 people were killed and 180 were wounded. 69? Are you? Oh, my God. Yeah. America flipped shit at the Boston Massacre, right? Yeah. Like early America. This is like so much worse and in modern context. You would respond with stones to like killing 69 people? Jesus. Well, that's the other thing is so I was looking into this and it the whole story is really 
obviously it's really tragic, but it's also from like a modern perspective, really interesting to dive into further. And so there was a man, Humphrey Tyler. He was at the event and he was there on behalf of a magazine. So he worked for Drum Magazine. He was the assistant editor. It is noteworthy to say that he was white and he was there kind of covering what was happening. And he was quoted as having said, they were grinning cheerful and nobody seemed to be afraid. This is this is kind of a long quote, by the way, so prepare yourself. Okay. There were crowds in the streets as we approached the police station. There were plenty of police, too, wearing more guns and ammunition than uniforms. And a, an African approached and said he was the local Pan-Africanist leader. He told us his organization was against violence and that the crowd was there for a peaceful demonstration. The crowd seemed perfectly amiable. He goes on then to say, there were sudden shrill cries of uh, the phrase, our land, but it's in their language, so I don't know how to say it. Women's voices, it sounded, from near the police, and hands went up in an Africanist salute. Then the shooting started. There were hundreds of women, some of them laughing. They must have thought the police were firing blanks. One woman was hit about 10 yards from our car. Her companion, a young man, went back when she fell. He thought she had stumbled. Then he turned her over and saw that her chest had been shot away. He looked at the blood on his hand and said, My God, she's gone. Hundreds of kids were running too. Mm. And he continues, sorry, this is like a long quote, but it's just so good that I didn't want to cut it down. So he continues on to say, Before the shooting, I heard no warning to the crowd to disperse. There was no warning volley. When the shooting started, it did not stop until there was no living thing in the huge compound in front of the police station. The police have claimed they were in desperate danger because the crowd was stoning them. Yet only three policemen were reported to have been hit by stones, and more than 200 Africans were shot down. The police also said that there was a crowd, or sorry, the police also have said that the crowd was armed with, quote, ferocious weapons, which littered the compound after they fled. I saw no weapons, although I looked very carefully and afterwards studied the photographs of the death scene. While I was there, I saw only shoes, hats, and a few bicycles left among the bodies. The crowd gave me no reason to feel scared, though I moved among them without any distinguishing mark to protect me, quite obvious with my white skin. So, yikes. So basically, he's trying to refute a lot of the points that the police were making, saying that he didn't see weapons, he didn't really see anything happening in terms of like trying to injure the police and and as such like even based on the policeman's story only three of them were supposedly injured by the stones whereas over 200 african people had been injured or killed um which implies imagine either how many police were there because that's a lot of dang from the shooting pictures i saw there weren't like that many it was definitely i mean it was definitely a situation where the police were outnumbered, but at the same time, he talks about in his quotes how they're, like, singing and they're, like, laughing, and to them, this is, like, it's not like they're not taking it seriously. Of course, this is a serious thing to be doing, but at the same time, they weren't there to cause trouble. 
And that was very clearly stated from the outset that this is a peaceful protest. Um, and so, like, there are children there. there like, he mentions children running away and the women being some of the people closest to the police. Um, and bikes littering the ground among the dead bodies. Because people weren't there to fight. They were just there to lend support to the cause. Wow. So. And then I also have... Um, a little bit from another person who was there. This one's much shorter. Well, much shorter in comparison. It's still pretty long. Um, but this is from another person from Drum Magazine. His name's Ian Barry. He was a photographer who was there. And the context for the quote is that he was at the protest taking photos. Uh, there wasn't really anything happening when he was there. And he was kind of worried that he might be arrested at this protest for trying to take photos, even though there was nothing happening. And his his kind of idea was he actually wanted to leave because if nothing important was going to happen, it wasn't worth getting arrested for, if that makes sense. Um, so if the police did start, you know, hauling people away, he only wanted to be arrested if it was, like, if he was getting really interesting photos that would make or break a like a hit story and at this point nothing interesting has happened uh, so he actually turns to walk away and then he hears some noises and he turns back and so that's where this quote kind of comes in because i've cut out a lot of the quotes before that explain all of this context he says i turned and started to walk back toward the compound the cops were now standing on top of their armored cars waving stun guns and when i was 50 yards away from the compound, they opened fire into the crowd. I can't say for sure that nobody lobbed a stone at the police, but I do not believe a threatening situation had built up in the time it took me to walk the two sides of the compound and back. The cops were in no danger. I can only assume that they came out with the intention of showing the crowd and in the process, Black South Africa, a dreadful lesson. So... And again, this is just somebody attending from a magazine. He's not there as a protester. He doesn't have like a particular agenda to push either way. He's just trying to see what's happening and take photos of it. So he's saying that although he can't be certain that no one threw a rock, he was only gone for the time it took to walk there and back, which I assume is not very long. And um, when he had left, there was no danger. And when he came back, like a minute later, they were shooting into the crowd. So, so he says that he thinks it was them showing the Pan Africanist League and and all these people who were protesting a dreadful lesson. So, not great. Probably was. Yeah. So this is sort of the context of what's happening in South Africa at the time. I did say that this was like a slight tangent from our regular storyline. Um. I had trouble verifying this fact, so I'm just going to put it out there that I'm not entirely certain this is true. But supposedly, uh, two of Makeba's family members were actually at the Sharpeville massacre and subsequently died. I don't, again, I don't want to like put that out there as like a hundred percent true fact. So, but it was something that I found which was interesting. Uh, her mother, I can say definitely died shortly after the massacre from unrelated causes, but it just happened to be around the same time frame. And she wants at this point to return home, 
because her mother has passed and she wants to be at the funeral and be with her family. And she finds at this point that South Africa had canceled her passport and she was not able to return. This makes her a stateless person. She's technically not seen as being a citizen of South Africa any longer. So they'd revoked that from her. And over the course of the rest of her life, which is jumping forward a bit, uh, she would come to have nine different countries grant her passports and ten gave her honorary citizenship. So she does have a career that is so well known that a lot of countries were willing to speak out on her behalf and that includes European countries and African countries so it's not just like in one region necessarily. Um, wow. But at this point, she's still screwed because she is a stateless person. So that'll come to a bit later. How would she, I guess, if she accepts an offer of, like, asylum, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I guess my question would be, like, if you don't have, like, a working passport, how the heck would you come in the country? Well, she's already in America. Oh, so she was, oh, that's right. She was in America and she found out yeah. what had happened. So okay. discovered while she's living in New York that her mother has passed. She wants to go home. And that's when she finds out that she cannot because her passport is technically not valid. That's heartbreaking. So up to this point, her fears for her family had kept her from saying anything that was like overtly negative against the South African government while she was away. She was trying to sort of be, like, play, play safe. Yeah, play like. safe, kind of hedge her bets. Uh, so even when she was outside the country, protecting her family was important to her. So she never, she never was, like, outright critical against them. But at this point, after Sharpville and her exile, she sort of started to be a little bit more vocal publicly against the apartheid regime. And so she was quoted as having said, I always wanted to leave home. I never knew they were going to stop me from coming back. Maybe if I knew, I never would have left. It is kind of painful to be away from everything that you've ever known. No matter where you go, there are times when people show you kindness and love. And there are times when they make you know that you are with them, but not of them. That's when it hurts. Mm. So, wow, that's that one makes you think, yeah, like the more you think about it, like you can be in America, but you'll never be American. And I, I assume that was less about the African American community that she was trying to be welcomed into and more about just like American culture in general. And unfortunately, it says a lot that even African American people in America could probably relate to that because they're in America, but they're not really of the like the majority group they're kind of seen as other um and they're also socioeconomically yeah but then she's like the other of the other because not only is she black but she's mm-hmm. not even from america so she kind of gets the worst of all the situations and she i mean in the beginning at least she really liked being in america and it was probably really exciting but you always know that this isn't home and as much as she had to say against the government of South Africa, like that was still her home. Those were still her people and her family and her community. And like, that was 
kind of where to some extent she would want to be and so she couldn't return so very dark I think yeah and I think having that choice taken from you you know like I think that's one thing like you know I feel like having a passport right like in general even if we can't use them right now it's like so totally different than you literally having that option and that ability to go home to where you're from and where you had family and like also not the even fact that it up. happened after she was already gone like she couldn't decide before she left saying like if I leave I won't be able to come back that's a totally different decision to make than leaving with the intention of being able to return and then finding out that you actually cannot and she couldn't say her last respects to her mom either no and she will be in exile for a very long time so while she's in exile in the u.s she ends up releasing her first full album and this will later on be followed by three more but the first one originally and the album contains one of her most famous songs and i'm not even going to pretend to be able to pronounce it it is spelled q-o-n-g-q-o-t-h-w-a-n-e in cosa uh, most Americans called it the click song. And I believe that there were actually multiple click songs on her repertoire. So I have decided to include one click song, one such click song, um, in this episode. So we will hear it in a second. And Kara is going to listen to it as well. And yes. it is in Kosa again. So that's a language that we've kind of been bringing up throughout this two-part series. But uh, it was considered by an american audience to be like again very different very exciting people really liked and remembered this song so she this is kind of a song that is most associated with her it's this one and there's kind of one other that people tend to remember her for so you can go ahead and click on the click song in my native village in johannesburg there is a song that we always sing when a young girl gets married It's called the click song by the English because they cannot say Ongotwane. wow I see what you mean about that language it's so beautiful like I definitely can't say the click sound no you can't even pretend to and that's the thing so I've just accepted that I am 
incredibly limited on this one. <laughs> but yeah, it's really beautiful. Um, and it it does stick out. Like you can imagine an American audience who's never been that exposed to Kosa finding that really exciting. Again, it's sort of that like irritating thing about like, oh, it's so exotic, blah, blah, blah. But like, I don't know, it, it could have been interesting to experience something from a culture that they didn't know a lot about um so yeah that song actually does really well the click the various click songs that she performs um and they are just called in english the click song so uh and then she and harry belafonte were invited to sing at madison square garden for jfk's birthday is that the same one marilyn sing at or no that is a good question and the answer that i have is i don't know oh my god it was was it it was the same one as happy birthday mr president oh (laughs) that's exciting man i wish we had a picture of marilyn and miriam now can you imagine that'd be awesome that's a big deal though like imagine like coming over here and being able to sing yeah, so from my very quick Google search, because I don't have the answer to this question, it seems like it was the same as the infamous Happy Birthday, Mr. President performance. So what a time to uh, to be in a cool place. Yeah. Um, Imagine all the people in that room. Wow. Yeah. And he was apparently insistent upon meeting her. So that was pretty exciting because she got to meet the president, which is, you know... For her, like, coming from a different country and from pretty humble beginnings to, you know, performing for the president and him being a fan. I think there's a picture on the JFK library, actually. Oh, nice. Yep. So I'm going to link you to this. Hopefully it'll show. I love how it says it says Miriam McCabe and then it says an unidentified band. Come on. (laughs) Just like just band. Well, that's exciting. See, even even doing the podcast, I'm still learning things about her. Props to the JFK Library. <laughs> so we've got some pictorial evidence of this event. So JFK was a fan, and Marlon Brando was also famously a fan of McCabe's. So, I mean, that's, that's pretty exciting. I don't have anybody that star-studded saying that they're a fan of Happy Hour History. So if yes. anyone knows any famous yes. people... I'd say send them the link. Thanks. So during her time in New York, she gets married again. You'll remember that she was married twice in the first episode. And now she's getting married for a third time to a man called Hugh Meskela. I probably said that wrong. Meskela. His name's Hugh. That's the important part. And he was actually another exile from South Africa. And they had performed together... I believe, in King Kong. So she'd known him. So he wasn't like a, a brand new person or anything to her. But they'd both been living in New York. They were both basically trapped in New York because of what was happening in South Africa. And they ended up getting married. They spent about five years together. And then, as goes basically all of her relationships, they ended up separating. In, uh, in New York... She met other black artists and performers who were involved and interested with the work being done by the civil rights movement. So during this time, she does a lot of kind of 
stuff with that. She spoke before the United Nations Special Committee Against Apartheid, asking for countries to stop trade with the South African government and to place an arms embargo as well against the country. She also performed for a fundraiser held by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which helped to raise $15,000 by an interracial audience at this event of over 5,000 people. And Martin Luther King Jr. called it, quote, the event of the year. She did several other events of a similar nature for various anti-Jim Crow or anti-apartheid groups. So she was kind of working to help these causes both back in South Africa and in the U.S. because obviously they were both so linked and, and both issues were quite similar. And so she worked with both parties essentially and she ended up actually being at odds with martin luther king because of the southern christian leadership conferences investments into south africa um they had been i guess investing some of their money in things that were happening there and that really upset her because she was trying to place these embargoes and to like stop bringing foreign money into the country as a way of showing the government that they fundamentally disagreed with the practices that were happening there. And so the fact that MLK was letting his group put money back into South Africa for various reasons upset her enough that she said that she would need to, quote, find a new idol. So, yikes. Wow. So, Major <laughs> friends with him for a bit, but, you know, there was a fallout. <laughs> And in 1966, she and Harry Belafonte won a Grammy Award for the oh. album An Evening with Belafonte and Makeba. And the album was pretty overtly anti-apartheid. She was also, at this time, um, the first Black woman to have a top 10 worldwide hit with the song Pata Pata in 1967. I don't have, like, deep commentary for these songs the way I did last time, but I just like having some musical context to these episodes because it's different from some of the other shows I've done where it's so modern and there's a lot that you can do with it, so I'm gonna include this one as well. So we'll listen to a snippet of Pata Pata. Sakukuga sati pega na tsi 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 pata pata. Sakuku
Oh, that's nice. It's a fun that's song. A nice, song. It is. I feel like I say that about all of them, but like they're just so I don't know, they're just enjoyable to listen to. Like it puts you in a mood. It is. It's really <laughs> it's like it's definitely a good mood. And in the middle of the song when she says, you know, this is what we listen to in Johannesburg, you know. Yeah. When we want to dance. <laughs> So, yeah, that one was pretty well-known internationally uh, in 67. So that was pretty exciting. And then in 1968, she gets married again. So fourth time's the charm, but not really. Um, And this time, she married African-American civil rights activist and Black Panther leader Stokely Carmichael. So Oh, I've heard of him. A little bit more inflammatory because of who he is. But uh, this move turns a huge portion of her American fan base against her because of the kind of way that they view the Black Panthers as a group and the kind of bad PR that gives her as a result. And they felt that she was becoming militant. She had many of her concert bookings canceled as a result of the marriage, which is pretty upsetting for her because she said she always said that her marriage was completely apolitical. You know, she was marrying him for like romantic based interests and not for political clout or to become militant or anything like that. Um, But people couldn't really see past who her husband at the time was. So it did have repercussions on her career. And both the CIA and the FBI placed her under surveillance. Of course they did. Going so far as to bug their apartment. Holy shit. So yeah, it was a pretty big twist for her to be kind of so under the microscope because of this choice. Eventually, she and her husband, Carmichael, traveled to the Bahamas for a trip and while they were in the Bahamas they learned that she was not allowed to return to America oh my god obviously he was a citizen so it was a little different for him but she wasn't and they had been letting her stay there prior to this and they would no longer welcome her in America so thanks (laughs) Mm. they refused to issue her a new visa And though the matter was supposedly eventually sorted, she understood that this was them saying that they did not want her there. So she decided not to return. And as a result, they moved to Guinea together, where they made a new home base there. Though at the time, she also started doing tours, and that took her to Europe and Africa and South America but their kind of home base was Guinea. She became a diplomat for Guinea at the UN and addressed the General Assembly. Uh, And her songs also became more critical of America's handling of race. So before she'd been pretty critical of South Africa, but now she was being critical of America as well in her music. And it included a song for Malcolm X. So... She was getting wow. she was getting more kind of overt in what she was saying. She's saying she's singing the truth, and her truth is very linked to politics. So, well, good for her. I mean, at some point, you know what I mean. Like, if like 
it makes sense with the experiences she's having, yeah. like the overt experiences, yeah. that that became her truth. Yeah. And man, I mean, it's predictable about the CIA opening a file on her, yeah. but it's still like disappointing, I guess, in my mindset, you know, <laughs> like say just because we have the notion of like freedom of, you know, well, I guess there's not technically a amendment, but freedom of ideology, like the idea that you can have your opinions and you can a voice and have a voice. But I mean, she, like you said, she was an other in a place that was already systematically discriminatory, yeah. like against black people. And then to boot, she wasn't from the United States. Yeah. So God. So she's at this point been exiled from two countries. Really? Yeah, basically. She's the good news is, and I don't think I have this in my notes for whatever reason, but while she's in Guinea, she becomes really good with, I believe, their president. I don't, I think that's like the term for their head of government, um, but I could be incorrect about that. But their president and his wife, she gets to know them really well. So she's just always sort of commingling with heads of states. Um, and <laughs> because <cattle>. of that, <laughs> because of that, obviously, like, for instance, she goes on to work with Guinea and the UN and such. So having those links and those relationships did a lot for her while she was away. Uh, and then we go on to kind of her later career. Uh, we're in the eighties now. Yeah. Or sorry, not the eighties. We're in the seventies rather. So we are in the seventies now and she's still doing her tours and such. And as more African nations are gaining independence and then, kind of working through the process of decolonization after independence has been achieved. She was invited to sing for many of the independence ceremonies. So in America, the predominantly white audiences really liked her non-English music because it was so different and foreign and all these things that kind of set her as the other. But when she was performing in African countries, the people really liked the same exact songs, but not because they were different. They they liked because they felt that they understood them. They felt kind of respected in her music. Whether or not that song was in their language, like it just created this greater sense of a pan-African identity. It made them excited to see somebody from Africa having such a prolific career. So they really liked to have her at these events. Uh, they knew her music was banned in South Africa as well. So it came to be seen as a way of like showing solidarity against the apartheid regime in in that country like so while she's touring all these other nations want to have her as a way to kind of make a statement against what's happening to the people of South Africa so she became kind of the hot ticket for a lot of these events that's awesome though like and I did mention I think I mentioned in the last episode that that's why she's like not, she'd always been singing in various indigenous languages, but it becomes really important to her while she's doing these kinds of events to feel like she's connecting to the people. Um, and so that was something that she kind of took with her was to sing in all of these different languages and to really make an attempt in the places that she visited to kind of sp to say something to them in particular, which was nice. That's really meaningful, I would think. Yeah. Like. And at this point, she starts to become known as Mama Africa and the voice of Africa. And to this, she said, quote, 
When I first heard people calling me Mama Africa, I used to say to myself, why does anyone want to put the whole continent on my shoulders? It was too heavy. (laughs) It was too much pressure. Then I thought about myself as Mama Africa, the goodwill ambassador, and I agreed. I could wear my Mama Africa tag with pride. So it's not really about the whole continent being on her shoulders. It's just about showing Africa and also showing the world what good can be done from these places and and how much they're kind of missing by neglecting to give any sort of attention to these places. Yeah. So she really kind of began to value that moniker being given to her. And she also, like I said, ooh, this is where it finally came in. She expanded her repertoire to include songs in nine different African languages, wanting to highlight the differences in culture all over the continent, since so many Westerners saw Africa as sort of a homogenous place. Even today, you have people who are like, I want to go traveling, like white people mostly. I want to go traveling. Yep. And when they say where they're going, they're like, Africa. And it's like, well, where? Oh. My God. Yes. And actually, I want to shout out to there's a brilliant podcast called It's a Continent. And it tackles that misconception and goes yeah. into different countries historical history. I don't mean to side traffic. No, that's um, good. It, but I just think it's important because it's a newer podcast. And it's addressing that. Yeah. And head on. And I think in such a well done thing, it, it, it goes by different countries and examines like different identities and like you said i think especially white people um if we can speak for ourselves here um why is africa considered a country there are all these different cultures identities histories and like you said i it's mostly white people that are like, oh, I'm going to Africa for the weekend. Sorry. I wanted to. When no, you, it's okay. When it's you good to go off, on, go off on tangents about this kind of stuff because it's important and it fits exactly into the message that she's trying to spread about appreciating the differences between these places. And uh, it's during these years that she eventually separates from and divorces Stokely Carmichael. So the marriage that forced her out of the U.S. is ended now. Mm. Although that doesn't actually make her want to go back there anymore or anything. It's just that she's divorced again. So after her fourth divorce, uh, getting into the 80s and beyond, she marries an airline exec. Um, If you think about it, she was born in, I believe, 1932. Yeah, 1932. And we're up in the 80s now. So she's in her 50s. She's, you know, she's not quite as young as she was but she marries for a fifth time i didn't even really get into this one because it's not super important but in 1985 her daughter bongi dies at the age of 34 oh does she have any kids um i believe yes she does i don't even know why i said i believe because it's literally the next sentence in my notes yes (laughs) because her daughter bongi had had two children miriam took them in and they actually moved to belgium and that became their new home base. Uh, though she did continue touring at this time, so she wasn't always at home. But they predominantly spend their time in Belgium. And she actually travels on tour for a while in the 80s with Paul Simon of Simon and Garfunkel-related fame. I love Paul Simon! Oh my god. 
So, yeah, she got to go on tour with him. And it was actually seen as a very controversial move to have toured with him because it was his Graceland tour uh, promoting the album of the same name. And that had actually been recorded in South Africa. Oh, I see. I, yeah. Yeah. So there had been there had, issue yeah there had been um a un imposed cultural boycott on south africa which she herself had argued for had endorsed like she obviously she'd been at the un multiple times so this is something that she was really passionate about personally uh having this boycott on south africa and so the fact that graceland was recorded there was kind of upsetting, but she still decided to tour with him. And that's why people were kind of confused about the move because it seemed antithetical to her beliefs. But it was a very successful tour, so I guess that was good for her. Uh, in 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from 27 years in prison. And at that point, when he comes to have power, obviously, in South Africa, He convinces Miriam to come home. So she has been in exile since the 60s. Uh, She returns to South Africa not using a South African passport. She actually uses her French passport. Oh, wow. Because at this point, she's got like nine of them. So, you know. Okay, that's taller. That's like legit She's just fanning out (laughs) her passports like they're a deck of cards. Hell yeah. And uh, she had been in exile for 31 years. So it's a long Oh my god. Yeah. Yikes. And she became a a goodwill ambassador for South Africa to the United Nations after she returned. So basically she's just constantly doing work for one country or another with the UN. Wow. And then getting into her final years, she continued working and touring and she creates another album called Homecoming which makes sense because she was able to return home. She occasionally appeared in films and on television, including doing a documentary called Amandla, which was about the powerful part that music had played in the struggle against apartheid, which makes perfect sense. Uh, In 1999, Nelson Mandela presented her with the Presidential Award, which would have been really exciting, uh, about nine years-ish after she had come back home. And she published two different autobiographies, one around the time of Graceland, so that would have been in the 80s, uh, and the other one in the early 2000s. And throughout kind of the the rest of her life, she continues her humanitarian work through the Zenzile Miriam Makeba Foundation. She also created, as part of that foundation, the Miriam Makeba Rehabilitation Center for Abused Girls. So, obviously, we had talked a little bit in the beginning about her first husband and the abuse that she had undergone with him before their divorce. she got to pay it forward now. Wow. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't know if there was, like, other instances of that in her life. Obviously, um, it's really easy in general. I think you even mentioned last episode um, when you're in kind of very racially segregated society to have violence against women as well. So she may have either seen things or experienced things herself uh, that would have continued to propagate this in her life. And so, yeah, starting a foundation for abused girls and women was important to her. 
She also supported campaigns for the awareness of HIV AIDS, along with uh, Gressa Michelle Mandela, so the wife of Nelson Mandela. And she was the first lady of South Africa and also the former first lady of Mozambique. I didn't know that. She had two different husbands who had been presidents of two different countries. Okay, that's a pretty cool That's like, a, kind of a baller resume, move. Honestly. <laughs> I didn't go into her life very much. I mean, not at all, besides this two sentences. Um, but in learning that, I became very intrigued by this woman who had been married to two different heads of states. So I admit I am like intrigued too. Because <laughs> like, like you have like, you know, going back into the day and also back into this podcast, you have someone like Eleanor of Aquitaine who pulls that kind of move, but you don't really see that so much in the modern world. No, no, that's true. It's interesting too. I I feel like so like I've neglected such an important part of history. You know what I mean? When I hear about things like this, I'm like, what? Yeah, you just don't this that long ago. No one ever like, talks about these kinds of things. Not no one, but like mainstream media. Or mainstream United States curriculum yeah. never talks about these things for a reason. Mainstream education, mainstream media, mainstream history podcast. Well, we don't hear well, about that. Not only that, I just feel like sometimes I think with history, and you may agree with me or you may disagree, I'm not sure, but I think sometimes there's, while when we're talking about something that isn't that far long ago, like that far removed, yeah, I think there is a lot of hesitation for open discussion because I had a, a teacher in high school that like he felt uncomfortable still talking about like the dissolution, dissolution of the USSR yeah. because it was so modern. And his take was like, well, maybe we need to be further out from it to be able to critically analyze. And I would disagree with that um, because I think – Part of understanding history is watching its evolution and growth and seeing the common parallels. And like, I kind of don't buy that excuse of it's not history yet, if that makes sense. It is harder. It's probably a lot harder to analyze the effects of and, you know, yada, yada, X, Y, Z. But yeah, I think that people who try to draw an arbitrary line between history and current events, they so... Like, there's just the, the overlap between them is too much. And obviously, one draws so much from the other that it's kind of impossible to say we're only going to talk about current events or we're only going to talk about history. You can't. You no. just can't. At some point, they intersect. No, time keeps ticking along, and no one cares that you've tried to draw an arbor- arbitrary line in the sand. I mean, I get, I guess, presenting as objectively as possible here, but it's kind of like with our subject, right? At some point, you may say, you know, I'm not being political. I'm just speaking my truth. But your truth may be political. Yeah. You know, it's like, hard to kind of differentiate between those things. And it's, yeah, it's exact same here. So the moral of the story is, is I learned something really cool about Grasa Michelle Mandela that I did not know before. I know. Now we're all going to be like deep diving, hopefully, after this episode, <laughs> my right? My Wikipedia search after this. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then... Miriam eventually officially retired from the music industry in 2005, although she did continue to do small performances after that. In 2008, at the age of 76, she was performing in a concert in Italy, and it was actually to it was to help promote and support work being done by a man called Roberto Saviano. 
and he was trying to do like he was trying to do work against a mafia-like criminal organization that was operating in the area and so i guess they held like a concert as like a benefit for raising money to continue this work which seems very obvious to me but i don't know how underground mafia like criminal organizations expect to be defeated so um but she she performed at this concert uh there was a 30 minute performance and then after this event she suffered a heart attack in italy and Mm. eventually passed away there so in 2008 uh, she passes and kind of in summary just about her life generally uh, Miriam Makeba, like we had talked about, rose from very humble origins in South Africa to becoming one of the most well-known South African performers of all time. And she found success all over the world. We talked about her, you know, international touring, the success that she found in Europe and America and Africa. Uh, she toured in South America as well. I don't know if she ever went to Asia. I didn't actually find anything about that. It's not impossible that she would have. Um, and she just had, like, a very critically acclaimed career for, you know, the majority of her life. Uh, she spoke out unintentionally sometimes and then more intentionally later on against the horrors of the apartheid government in South Africa and the similar racism that she saw in segregated U.S., in the segregated U.S., um, She spent 31 years in exile from her home country, though she was beloved in many other places and gained various passports and honorary citizenships. Uh, She also became somebody that was very loved by by the people of Africa in general throughout these many countries where she uh, performed and toured. Uh, She tried to sing as much as possible in their languages. They saw her very much as like a voice for... um, greater awareness for what was happening in these African countries. And she also becomes a voice for the South African people as well. She did incredible work through her humanitarian organizations and the various times that she addressed or worked for the UN. And she said of her life, quote, I kept my culture. I kept the music of my roots. Through my music, I became this voice and image of Africa and the people without even realizing. Wow. Mama Africa. So, yeah, there's just so much to her. There's kind of this this very beautiful story of somebody who was put through a lot of hardships, but throughout the whole time really tried to keep herself as authentic as possible. Um, we talked a lot about, in the last episode, things like Lovely Lies, and it it probably would have been really easy in some ways to want to to shift into what people may have wanted her to be um but she was always very authentic she always wanted to perform the way that felt like the truth to her so to use music i think to kind of be a unifier you know historically speaking for people not just of her nation which i think is beautiful like I think we talked about this last episode, but it was really remarkable to me was that she had an interest in like learning languages. Even when she didn't like fluently speak, she would teach herself through repetition. And 
I mean, that's, that's a genius. I mean, to be able to like naturally pick up on that and just innately be interested in like human spirit and connection, like that's beautiful. And I think I I would hope the listeners, which by this point, um, I think I've listened to several of Miriam's songs would agree (laughs) When you listen to her, like regardless of the the type of genre, like regardless if it's like the slowed down songs or the upbeat tempo, she just has such a unique voice. Like it speaks to your soul. I mean, that sounds really cheesy, but it it speaks to you even like in songs where you may not understand the the words. Yeah, I agree. That's, I think, what's remarkable. And I'm like, man, how did I go, you know, 27 years of my life without having heard of her music or her? Like, that's messed up. <laughs> it's kind of disappointing, like, for me just to know that 2008, like, I, I recognize that for some people who are younger, that is a long time ago. But it's not that long ago. No, it's not. Not <laughs> in the sphere. I mean, no. really. So it it's such a kind of, it's still a very recent passing. I mean, Heath Ledger passed the same year, and I still talk about him like he's alive today. So. Um, yeah, no, 2008, I mean. And she died in November 2008. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's so recent in the fact that, like, I was living at the same time that she was, unlike pretty much everybody else that has been featured on this podcast, and yet I had never heard of her. Well, I think it's probably because, if you think about it, again, it's so recent, but not only that, I mean, she addressed issues that were political yeah. through her music it's the kind of and thing I that people just don't always want to talk about bingo exactly i i think there's still this discomfort for a lot of folks talking about apartheid like yeah. this is still a real not that long ago like plenty of people lived and p- plenty of people benefited yeah. from apartheid no. yeah so it was nice i mean because we didn't know about her and her like not that she's unknown. Obviously, she was very famous throughout the world, but she's just not somebody that gets a lot of kind of traditionally mainstream attention at this point. Um, it was nice to be able to research her. It was nice to be able to talk to you about her and to kind of to kind of tell a little bit about her life. Uh, and I hope people enjoyed this episode because it is very different from some of the ones that we've done in the past. So hopefully this one was enjoyable and that getting kind of musical interludes was a nice way to spice up the episode a bit. I felt kind of disingenuous not to include a bit of her music when you're talking oh, yeah. about the way a musician? that... Yeah, I mean, not only is she a musician, but her music is so integral to her life story as well. Like, it's just so... um The things that she's singing about are the things that she's experiencing. So... It would be sort of remiss not to include those. And again, for anyone um, who's listening to this, I will include snippets of the songs in the episode. So you will have already heard that because, you know, you've already heard the edited final version. But those will just be part of the song. So if you want to listen to the whole song, you can always click in the show notes. um, And I will have links to YouTube videos to listen to the entire thing. But otherwise, I just have to say thank you, Kara for being here again and then uh only really to do kind of social media shout outs so all my social media first of all is linked in the show notes Uh, my twitter is at happy history pod my instagram is at happy hour history pod my facebook is happy hour history if you just search it you should find my green logo 
Email is happyhourhistorypod at gmail.com. I've received some really nice emails recently, so always feel free to send me something there. I also have a Patreon if you are so inclined to become a patron. That is www.patreon.com slash happyhourhistorypod. Lastly, uh, the nicest and freest thing you can always do is to rate and review the show if you have a few minutes to do that. I would really appreciate it because it does help people find the podcast. And then lastly, 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 um, I forgot to do this last time, but Kara is also involved in the history world of the internet. So I don't know, Kara, if you want to um, link, mention your own um, like Twitter presence or time travel talks, potentially just yeah. give a little shout out to that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so first off, thank you for letting me on your show. I appreciate no problem. it. Um, and basically, this is part of the way that um, Kaden and I met. So um, last summer, um, her, I and some other individuals um, in the history community, we were really brainstorming an idea of how can you get people with varying levels of history interested? Like, how can we talk about the shit they cover in school while simultaneously making it fun? Right now, we're doing monthly, um, sometimes semi-monthly history chats on rotating talks. And basically what we do is we post the questions on all of our channels, which is Time Travel Talks on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you'll see our logo with a little hourglass and you can follow and like. And what's nice is we post all of the image questions up and you can feel free um, to chime in and, and respond or like, share any of that even after like our weekends where we do that. And um, we also really um, try and bolster other independent history podcast creators, um, history bloggers, anyone with a legitimate interest and space for talking history. And I would love for more people to, you know, participate, talk, have ideas for different topics, because we did Ptolemaic Egypt actually in August, which was pretty more niche than we had done because we started um, the first one. And like I said, Caden was involved in the launching process. World War II is where we started with, which is a hell of a benchmark. <laughs> and we've been talking, we've been trying to make it even more important to discuss not just like what's in our history topics. So um, what I really have liked about all of our discussions is that we've in included diverse perspectives and topics that maybe people wouldn't feel comfortable about um, learning in school. It's, it's a good sphere, honestly. And there are so many great podcasters like Hayden out there that have such a real, I think, um, enthusiasm for history. So please participate. And I am sorry I ranted. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Yes, yeah, so if you guys are interested, you can go find the social media pages for Time Travel Talks. You don't have to be like a podcaster or anything oh, to yeah. be involved. It really is just a discussion. Um, so you're more than welcome to chime in if the topic is something that you know about. You're more than welcome to just kind of watch. Oh, and see be a lurker. Honestly, just, be a lurker. Yeah, seeing us all try to understand things. Like, I don't think I chimed in almost at all for Ptolemaic Egypt because I know very little. So you guys can definitely come in. Whatever level of knowledge you're at, you can always, like, be involved in the process. And then, like Kara said, they do a lot of work as well to promote history podcasters, history bloggers, people who are just kind of involved in in trying to talk about these subjects in various forms of media. Kara and Time Travel Talks are kind of absolutely a, an amazing resource to be looking into um, 
because I love having you all listen to my podcast, but some of you might want to branch out into other things. And so uh, Kara and Time Travel Talks are a really good place to kind of start and find new, interesting, and diverse shows that are going to kind of hit all the things that you want. Yeah. Because Kara listens to pretty much every history podcast in the world. (laughs) It's in English. If anyone wants to follow me, my Twitter handle is Kara DiDemizio on Twitter. It's Kara.DiDemizio on Instagram. Yes. So you guys can go check that out. You can find me as well. All of these things I will make sure to link in the show notes. So if you're like overwhelmed with information right now, you can definitely stop down there and find all the information. But otherwise, thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening to Miriam McCabe's life story and I will catch you guys next time.